Hola, this is Lorena Junco Margain, and I'm so excited for this journey. We decided to launch this podcast to share my story with the hope that you could connect the dots of your life and truly be on your way. Off season three, Lorena sits down with a very special guest, Dr. Perrier, a renowned surgical oncologist and tenured professor at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, who played a leading role in helping Lorena in the wake of her fateful surgery. In this part of their discussion, Dr. Perrier recounts her path to practicing medicine, explains the danger of the white coat effect in hospitals, and emphasizes the dire need for doctors to take the patient's perspective into consideration during treatment. Now to today's episode. Hello, mis amigos. Hola, my friends. Today, I'm very excited to share with you that Dr. Nancy Perrier is here with us. And today will be a very exciting day, not only to hear about the doctor world, but also about the doctor's personal life and how is it that she deals with these two gigantic, impactful roles and where is it that she finds balance and if she can share with us that glimpse that the doctors go through and how we can help them as their patients to become better at what they do and the good practices and the bad practice. So I invite you all to listen carefully and enjoy because it's a true privilege to have Dr. Perrier with us. Welcome, Dr. Perrier. I'm very excited this is happening. I actually feel I'm dreaming. Every deed, every step that I took on the way to healing and forgiveness has led us here. And I really want to appreciate it. The moment I saw you, I knew that something special was going to happen. I would like starting with a beautiful card you gave me today. And I think this will set the tone on our conversation. Make the most of today. Time waits for no man. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why they call it The Present by Alice Morris Earl. So welcome, Dr. Perry. It's an honor having you here. Thank you, Lorena. I'm humbled to be here and so dang excited. Yes, it's so, definitely very exciting. Yeah. I confess that as I'm not a doctor, so for me, a doctor has had always a very special position, like an authority. So I actually feel very important right now, sitting next to the one of the most highly achieving surgeons we have in the U.S. So it's a true honor. Oh, it's my absolute privilege and pleasure. I am so grateful to have this time with you because you, in your journey, have been so important to me. It's bi-directional. Uh, and that, in, you know, in and of itself is, um, my heart is full and grateful. Thank you. Thank you for the trust. I know this is definitely asking a lot of, of you, not only from living um, the city where you live, driving for this and having the trust that I will honor every word that you share with us. And I think we have a very important role to fill today. We want our listeners to know that we're being very vulnerable and that they need to take this with an open heart and open ears, that um, I'm, I ner I'm nervous, I admit it. Uh, this is definitely bringing back emotions from when I was sick and seeing you sitting in my living room. It just gives me happy thoughts for the future, that there can be a relationship with our doctors beyond the office, beyond the clinic and beyond the emergency. So thank you for setting that standard and for being willing to get out of that role. I appreciate that very, very much. You're welcome. You know, sitting here, it means to me the importance of acknowledging that hierarchical, intangible, untouchable history that we have in that white coat syndrome needs to go away because Um, we need to be not hard and cold like the steel of a knife. We need to be, you know, the new um, way forward is to be more adaptable, more nimble, 
um, and to show and to acknowledge and promote um, to get the brightest and the best people in this field, to give people to be their true selves, you know, the, the entirety of who, who they are and not to change who they are to become um, a surgeon or a physician. And that's really, really important to me um, at a local and a national level. So to our listeners, um, the first time I heard about the white coat syndrome was when I had to reach out to psychiatry help to deal with what I know now is a white coat syndrome. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what this is? And I don't think it is a very common terminology within the real people. It's more within the academics and the doctors, or at least until you seek help. So tell us a little bit of how patients that have gone through a lot have this connection uh, with seeing a doctor and going into a very stressful or a fight or flight mechanism sort of situation. Sure. You know, the white coat part of it is if you remember when you came to see me in my clinic, I didn't have on a white coat. You did not. Which is unique in and of itself. That acknowledgement of, um, of being professional, um, but sitting down and looking straight in the eye with you to not create any hierarchy so that we could have a relationship and I could help you go through finding the right cure for you, the right cure, um, which was technical, and healing, but to, to do that together, to educate you and your family and to make the right decision. The white coat syndrome is historically the behavior uh, that is really based on um, ego and authority, of walking into a room, discerning what needs to be done without really acknowledging the person in front of you, but more um, of this is a patient or this is a case or this is a diagnosis. And that is was probably acceptable in prior cultures and prior generations, but no longer is is at the path forward. Uh, we know that it's intimidating. We know that it is um it inhibits patients from speaking up. It inhibits peripheral care from timeouts and people speaking up and questioning. And really, as leaders and leaders in the field, the most important leaders sit at the head of a table and they bring everyone around the table who they trust and who are smart and they want to hear what they have to say. They don't want to shut them down and coerce them. And that's what the white coat syndrome does. It, it says, I'm walking into a room and I'm the boss and the rest of you need to listen. And that's not the best path forward. And so eliminating that, I think, is really important. Uh, I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear what your family says. I want to hear what the nurse has picked up. I want to hear what the fellow's opinion is to question me and to keep me uh, without any blind spots. I think that's amazing. Is that something that is being implemented in med school or is it something that has not yet been approached? It's not a part of routine institutional academia. I can say that I'm blessed to have been trained um, at the Mayo Clinic, and that was Will and Charlie Mayo's perspective, that you sit with the patient as one, and um, and never in our training were we ever allowed to wear a white coat to roam the hospital. Yes, I think that's a very healthy practice to our listeners. I invite you to read my book on the way to Casa Lotus. You will see the importance of Dr. Perrier's impact in my life. After she did my life-saving surgery at MD Anderson, I followed my path to Mayo Clinic where they have a very holistic approach. And one of the things that really caught my attention is that the doctors are not a, on a time constraint. So it is very, it is actually, I felt as a luxury to have a doctor sit as long as I needed with me. And now I, when I could remove that anxiety, I feel that all the questions flowed and then you were like, is there anything else? And I would be like, actually, no, versus I feel I didn't ask what I was supposed to ask because I was very nervous. And that's exactly what you made me feel when I saw you. It's just this gut feeling, you know, like all my family, my dad said like, man, this woman is sharp. And my mom is like, 
you're going to be okay. And I knew I was. And I remember you being very humble in saying God gifted me with a, this set of hands and I was born with a gift. So I would like you to explain a little bit of, of the gift. Who taught you that? Or how is it that you got to understand that you were gifted in that way? Lorena, when when you walked into that room or I walked into that room where you were sitting and you felt whatever it was you felt, that was peace and grace. And that was your faith. And that was grace in its pure form. That acknowledgement of recognizing that I am merely a vessel. This has nothing to do with me or anything that I've ever done. This is God. I am the clay. He is does the mold, right? And um, and anything that happens through our hands or our, our activity is just allowing that, just being the vessel on earth to allow that to happen. I grew up knowing that I was born for a purpose. And I can't describe that but telling you that I was born of circumstances that were not routine and casual. And there was actually um, a death and dying that happened that had that not happened, I would not have been born. And I think my family has always known and people around me that that had to be I had to be born for a purpose. And so I've always known that purpose. And I've always been faithful and how along the way uh, my grandfather uh, was seen and died at MD Anderson when I was young. And again, another seed along the way and recognizing that the grace and peace are a calling. It's a vocation. I never, I never wake up and go to work. And I never thought of uh, med school or, or any of it. My, my father's also a physician, and I grew up in the hospital. Um, I grew up uh, really in a household where we were, I was always in the hospital. So I'm very comfortable there. Yes. And did they teach you about vocation? You know, I grew up always knowing, you know, priests have a vocation, doctors have a vocation. It's like a very specific role that you have to perform. But there also needs to be a calling or like the time you clicked when like, this is my element. When you were a kid, did you already know you were going to be in that field? Did your father talk a lot about that? Or what was the verbiage around you being a, a girl with purpose? Yeah, I love that. So I grew up uh, my in a medical family and really in the hospital playing with my father's skeleton, you know, as, you know, in understanding anatomy and being in tune with it. So that was always a give. And then I was a child who was, uh, who was a, a pure STEM child. I was a pure science nerd um, and had that, you know, recognizing my abilities and the, what, was in, uh, what was impressed upon me and where, where I thrived was science. So it was a natural. And then along the way, there was never uh, any question of what I was going to do. Um, and then along the way, there are very specific events that happen that I think we all recognize. You know, when we talk about life's happiness, the the joy and the woes and how they're intertwined. But there are very specific events in along my entire life that defined how I got here today. For instance, when I was in medical school, a circumstance where I saw a patient with an adrenal tumor and it totally clicked for me, the physiology right? The physiology of this makes that and the meticulous, you know, and it was, okay, I'm going to do this forever. None of my colleagues, none of my peers, it wasn't even a profession. It wasn't even an acknowledged specialty. And then, you know, meeting an individual who, you know, uh, was transformative in my life as to where I, that I was going to do surgery because that was totally, to me, um, hand-eye, meticulous, what we see, uh, devouring um, the anatomy that came easy to meet, whereas, you know, other things, uh, not so much interest. But I think the importance of being open and receptive to why we are here, you know, that we have a cause, um, and just um, not having um, friction and recognizing that 
it's not of our own accord. I have I have so many friends and colleagues who are in control. If they would just let go and recognize, we we have to do the work along the way, certainly, and we have to you know bear the cross of the work. But if we let go and listen for the cues. We, we we will be perfectly aligned. I agree with you. I always say, God send me a sign. And when you're truly open to to seeing them, there are just good omens happening all around you, and and you just know when you're doing the right thing. For our listeners who are still in the process, let's say college, what would be something that you would recommend to to be open to? Because I think that. At least I speak for myself. I made decisions. I got married very young. I don't take it back, but I totally see myself as being reactive versus proactive. So what would be questions for anyone that is considering medical school? Like what would be a sign or things that you would be aware of that you would say, This could be what type of wiring or what type of profile is someone that is a good doctor? I love that. Um, and we see it, right? I see we see undergrad students and medical students and residents. I mean, they're constantly rotating through us and, and with us. And I, I love being exposed to it. And I love recognizing the patterns and seeing the behavior and and that you can even identify in people what specialty, you know, wow. even before they recognize it. But I think curiosity is number one to have a curious mind to have a mind that is um, is is um, eager to learn and 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 to have more you know to, to do more I think recognizing people that have that intangible grit where they're not easily broken down because there are many obstacles along the way that are detractors that are just sort of meant to deter people just in the the long process and I think without that, little bit of grit of recognizing, okay, this is uh, this is meant to be a parallel for me, but it's not going to stop me. So I think having that, certainly the the vocation part, which cannot be, you can't train for that. Um, that innate emotional intelligence of being able to have empathy and read people is what makes great doctors. You can be a doctor without that, um, but it won't be joyful. It won't be joyful, if, it, it, you know, if you if you have to work at responding to people, or there are you know certain subspecialties where you really you know you don't have to deal with people, and and you know we would cue people that way, and then I think the courage, people are you know they think oh it's 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 long or it's hard or it's uh, or it's you know a lot of work or it's you know, um, and I would think having that courage which comes from having a forward light that you're just, you're, you know, you're, you're not going to deviate from your path. Correct. Um, because there are a lot of things along the way that we take a step back. It's, that's a little bit out of our comfort zone. So I'm just going to jump off the plank here. And I don't want to say settle because that's not the right word, but I'm not going to push myself to that next boundary. And in your experience, is there a lack of people that are in the medical field taking up the next level because they prefer being on a comfort zone where they office from, you know, nine to five, there's no emergency calls. How does that look for a doctor in a career? Because for example, I do know that you're one of few adrenal surgeons that are willing to do partial adrenalectomy. When I was under that situation, I learned that. I, I just imagined every city had one. And then it gave me a lot of anxiety knowing that there weren't many. So how would you encourage, you know, I might imagine there are, let's say, uh, many nurses and many dermatologists and the more complex this specialization, the less people there are. How would you encourage a listener that is considering going, let's say, the, the high road, the one of a little bit more consistency and long view than, than short view. Is there a point where you say, I would never take it back? Or is there a point where you say, I sacrificed my family in order to satisfy my vocation? Or can both be consistent? What? How do you handle that? Those are great questions. And I put the answer back on 
the responsibility lying in 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 me, um, in those peers of mine that are leaders, for us to pave that way for those behind us, because those that are coming along can't make that change. We need to make that change. A, we need to be seen. You have to see it to be it. If, if as a little girl, you don't see a woman that you can look up to, who can do what you think you, you, you want to do, or that you, you won't aspire to do that. So we have to be willing to sit on the couch. We have to know that we're on our way and what we, we need to be vulnerable and go out there and be seen. Number one. Um, number two, you know, for the, for the specialty part, um, again, earlier acknowledgement of specializing and doing things earlier, um, presentation for people to see and to know and to aspire is, again, fitting in us making those pathways open so that we can open those doors for those behind us. But I don't think the young um, young women and young men of today, uh, they will demand something different in this current life because, again, the, the balance has to be better. We have all been in positions, and in my uh, 29 years of, of doing this, there have been points along the way that I have sacrificed and made the work the idol. And in those instances, I have been personally led astray. And I needed to stop and say, hold on a second, why am I doing this? Because it's not the caring for the patient, Lorena, or the, or the interaction or the skills. It's the business of it that gets in the way. It's the, it's the paperwork. It's the cases. It's the ego. It's the taking on more responsibility. It's doing more, particularly in academia and in, um, you know, at the ego system of um, as we ascend into our specialties. And we get caught into that. And that becomes the driver instead of hang on a second. And so I think, you know, the, and hang on a second is this pace is too fast. Um, this is for the wrong motive. Let me take a step back and take pause. And again, I think the onus is on my peers. It's on those of us in positions of leadership um, to make it okay to say it's not okay to say that I'm never going to be home at dinner. That's not acceptable, and that's not um, the way this is going to work. Yes, I remember when I first had my symptoms, I went with my OBGYN, and he's, um, so in Mexico, we're still a little bit behind in a way that you call the doctor on their cell phone, even if it's 2 a.m. in the morning. And um, when I moved to the United States, I saw clear boundaries on office hours, and but I think it's two, two extremes. There was no like middle ground where, where I felt seen as a person. So when I requested a meeting, uh, an appointment with him, telling him, you know, it's not about OBGYN problems. I just feel something is off. And he he's Hispanic. I told him, I just haven't found a doctor that will listen to Lorena. He would only listen or she would only listen to the symptoms or the labs. Correct. And he told me something very powerful that stuck with me. He said, that's what took me to my divorce. So he said that after getting divorced, he promised he would keep being a doctor, but being very like protective about how he went uh, about with his family. And I wanted to ask you, with being such a high achieving woman, mother, wife, how have you found balance and how is it that your husband has played a role in understanding or what is it that you would ask from patients and from society that we could help out have doctors giving their talent and not asking of them paperwork, legal, insurance? You know, you're having to wear so many caps and so many roles that are necessarily put upon you. What would be a, like two things that you would say to all the people listening out there, we need to work on this culture so they can let us do what we're here to do. 
I think one of the answers is in teaming. I think forming teams of those of us identifying what our particular skill set is, um, what brings us joy, and putting someone in that role and then not stretching them thin to be in multiple other roles that um, lessen that concentration of that skill set. So I think, for instance, in the teaming of identifying folks who are necessarily really good technically in the operating room and may not enjoy the patient listening and the patient care part, how can we find ways that they're technically available, they're in the operating room, they can do just that part that they like well, um, and we can eliminate the part of them having uh, clinical care. How can we utilize assistance, whether it's PAs and nurses, to to deal with paperwork portions, right, or uh, the questionnaire portions, or things that are expected to be routine? Uh, maybe it's the routine post-operative calls that, of course, if it needs to be elevated where there needs to be clinical decision-making, but if it's a check-in, um, not expecting one person to manage the entire spectrum, but uh, delegating it, but in a way that's an effective team of people that work well together, that enjoy each other and recognize, you know, what complements, what a complementary role is. And so I think that is one of the answers in the future of healthcare, creating those teams, which gives everyone a little bit of a boundary because we do need boundaries. Um, I agree. And you also need just for sanity, you need your space, you need, um, you're as human as we are. And I imagine you also need time to exercise time to nourish yourself, uh, time to be a mother. So I truly, my admiration goes to you because not being a doctor, I get overwhelmed with back to school night and meet the teacher and, you know, the Christmas pageant. And I just can't imagine hurdling so many things at the same time. Um, I imagine your husband has been a, a very important pillar in your life. I don't see how you could do it alone. Has totally. that been the case? Totally. The most important decision that we make in life, and I have medical students come to my office and contemplating, should I be a dermatologist or a surgeon? And, and, they're, and they're pondering, and I just listen and look, and the most important decision you make in life is who you spend your life with. It's who that partner is. Um, do they understand you? Do they compliment you? And um, and there is absolutely no two ways about it. I could not fulfill my calling or do what I do without the special graces of of the wonderful man that that God put me with. And totally, uh, that he's a rock solid, stable. He needs no padding of his ego. He has no question of being intimidated by anything that I do or say. He's a sound partner and it's it's total give and take. Yes. Um, I, I, he knows my intention is to absolutely do as much as I can and I do. Um, and when I can't, he does everything that he can do. Um, and when he can't, then I pick it back up. And it's a constant, it's a, it's a dance. It takes two to tango, right? It takes, absolutely <laughs> takes two to tango. Hola, hola. Thank you, my friends. Thank you for having the time to read my book on the way to Casa Lotus. But especially thank you for having the time to listen to listen with an open heart and open ears. I don't take this for granted. Every second you give me is a gift for me. I get better and better and I work the muscle of forgiveness. I work actually all the muscles of gratitude, even of sadness. I'm willing to sit with emotions and project myself through you and my interviewing friend where I can really say, how can I apply this to my life and how can I be a better person? I hope my story is helping you. Is it? I would love listening to your story. Reach out. It's easy. Info at lorenajuncomargain.com. Tell me your story. We're a click away. That's part of the silver linings COVID has brought. So stay with me. Tell me what you think about this amazing episode. Un beso. Thank you.
think the importance of when I see a patient, and I'm going to speak from my individual um, practice style, and then I'll, I'll speak for us as a profession. When I see a patient, the first thing I do is sit down, um, look them in the eye, and um, ask them to tell me about themselves. I always start it off with, tell me where you're from, because that in and of itself tells you so much about a person, right? Oh, I'm from um, Mexico, but I've lived in Austin for 45 years, right? I mean, that tells me something about your identity. So, And what I'm doing there is building a relationship and acknowledging my own vulnerability that I'm here with you. And so, you know, we're both sitting here together. And I think having the patient see that, that I'm a person too. Um, I have book club tonight. I have uh, school uh, teacher night. I have to get the Christmas cards out. Um, yes, my husband has um, woke up with, with reflux and he feels bad. The dog uh, needs to go to the vet today. Groceries. Um, groceries <laughs> list. Uh, you know, I need to call my father back who's 89, who I'm a little worried about. My PA is uh, pregnant and out. My my chapter in the book is due. Um, the grant is supposed to be turned in, in in 12 days, and I haven't had a single time to, you know, all of that is going on. So for the patient to recognize, you know, our sacrifice to be there, our, our, our vocation, our calling, our expertise, but um, but that that's number one. And number two, to just subtly respect what we put into place is for the purpose of boundaries and not to take it personal. So for instance, in my clinic yesterday afternoon, my PA, who is my physician assistant who I work with very closely, was really upset and needed to talk to me about one of our patients that we operated on two weeks ago who really is doing fine but was having a bad day and called her 14 times in an hour. And she was also trying to answer other phone calls and deal with the flood and deal with rearranging patients. And we had a patient with a really bad cancer in the clinic that we needed. You know, there was a lot going on, and she needed to set the boundaries and tell the patient, this is not okay. We have given you labs to get, and you haven't gone for them. Um, you have missed your post-op appointment. We have given you suggestions, and you haven't called us back. But understanding it's a give and take. It's the dance. It's the dance. And she was so flustered, um, and I needed to acknowledge that. I needed to tell her how much I, how much I appreciated that she had taken that hit for the team. I needed to um, offer, do I need to intervene? Do you need me to call the patient's husband? Do we need to get um, the home doctor involved? But I think those, and, and I, I don't think that patient would have ever intentionally, had she known what was happening on our end, it's just understanding, okay, this is, these protocols we've put into place they're, we've thought through them, and we do understand, and we are a team, and we we really do need you to get the labs, because we can't answer your questions without getting the labs, because that will help us give the information, because we need to listen to you, but we need to use the science. We need to look at the labs and look at the data and then listen to you. So that um, acknowledgement that we're human and we're on the same level, and and then the second is work with us when we can, um, that we're doing the best we can with the system. And we totally acknowledge that the system isn't perfect. And this healthcare system certainly needs improvement. And, um, and we can't work on it fast enough to fix the quality issues. But, um, but we acknowledge that and we're trying. Um, and so just have a little grace. It goes back to grace. It goes back to grace. I remember my patients. I remember their stories. I never remember their names. I never associate, you know, and I will tell, you know, when we're talking to the team, it's, you know, Miss, Miss so-and-so who's, um, who, who met her husband on the boardwalk in San Antonio when he gave her his <laughs> business card, you know, or, oh, Miss so-and-so who's the school teacher, um, and she, you know, she runs the cafeteria on the weekends. You know, it's, it's totally, totally, it's totally, because I am, I totally know, I, I remember stories, and so it's the story, and it's, it's funny, my, one of my partners, who we just adore and, and hand-recruited, his first 
day working with us at Anderson for the first few months, he worked with me, shadowed me to do what we call a super fellowship to understand the MD Anderson way. And apparently, Lorena, he was with us because I I gave him the book and he recalled, he said, I, 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 I remember that interaction. I totally remember that because it was one of his first weeks at Anderson and he was following me and shadowing me. I remember him. And so um, I can tell you that when I walk in the room with a patient, um, A, I have done my homework before I walk in. I never just walk in a room. I have um, been in the workroom. I have had the team prepare for that patient from the moment that we get there, uh, we get them registered as a patient. Um, and I am leading the force on uh, what labs we need, what CT we need, what information we need, what pathology report I need, um, what outside records we need, so that the, all of that is in queue and happening. And then that information is processed and packaged and brought up to another level of in the days before, okay, who am I seeing on Tuesday? Who's coming with them? Tell me when the labs were done. Did the CT scan get done on Monday with a certain amount of contrast so that it's available and the and it's read and I can review it by the time I see her when I walk in the room at Tuesday at 2 and by the time on Tuesday when I walk in the room at 3 and when I walk in the room at 4 and when I walk in the room at 5. So my homework as a professional. Um, and then on that day, that morning, um, I wake up. I have reviewed those cases the night before, which is a routine and a ritual that I go through. My kids, my husband, they know, you know, she, I'm in my zone. I'm in my, I'm in, I'm in my zone and I, you know, I need a certain, I need a certain blanket. I need certain lighting, you know, I, and then in the morning I have, um, I wake up and I have a time of uh, meditation and I pray. Um, and it's absolute. I'm praying for my patients. I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for the day. I'll send out prayers and, and groups and get my mindset. Um, and so that's all in the process. And I might have a bunch of things on the to-do list that need to happen. But that piece of knowing professionally, I am totally zoned in. And then I prepared for you in the clinic room. And if you notice and you remember, I always have had someone go in before me. Always. Always. Um, because that's part of the process. Some of the stuff that needs to be said, some of the information that needs to be screened, some of the information, because while they're in there, I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing the scan, I'm looking at the pathology, um, I'm specifically, um, if I need to call my radiologist to look at that scan with me, um, and what radiologist am I calling um, on his cell phone. Specifically, I want you to look right here at the blood supply to tell me where it's coming in on the lateral aspect of that adrenal gland. I remember being in awe when you said, you know, I want your surgery on this day. It's a Monday because I'm rested with this specific team at this time. And I I really value that because I know um, being an artist, you know, you need certain conditions for for your gift to come totally. out. If, if the conditions are not there, your chances of success just go down. Part of the patient uh, as a role, like my role was to be patient. And I remember um, I would pray for patients. I really valued and saw you orchestrate everything you needed for your hands and your gift to perform. And I do think, and I am guilty of that, that with my first sur surgery, my priority was a trip. And I told the surgeon, let's get this fixed. I'm ready when you are, and he had an opening and we just did it. I'm not saying he did the right thing, but I'm saying I put pressure. Totally. And I, I, I'm guilty of that, you know. I, I understand that God has its timings, and we need to understand that doctors will prioritize uh, if it's an emergency, if it's not, and it's just that we, instead of questioning, we just either go and demand or totally just kind of surrender to the process. So I wanted to ask you when you said it's all these circumstances that need to happen. My first surgery, it started with a radiologist giving the impression and in the conclusion, that's where the typo was. So instead of saying right, it's at left. So the surgeon never saw the scan 
never read the interpretation, only read the conclusion. So this is kind of the weakest link sort of thing in a teamwork, right? I'm not saying he didn't do his job because he must do, I imagine, all those three. But how do you deal with when part of your team didn't do the job, but you're the one that take the blow? Totally, um, Lorena. It's the team is only as strong as its weakest link. And so it's a constant process of getting the team to where they need to be, of acknowledging it, of mentoring them without tormenting them, Correct. right, uh, to get everyone to perform at their highest level. So we have team meetings before clinic. We have team meetings after clinic. Again, we acknowledge, um, as Will Mayo said, um, when you do something right and you're acknowledged for it, take it and throw it away. When you do something wrong and then something goes it doesn't go right. You cherish that. You read it. You learn from it. You improve it. You use that as your stimulus to never let it happen again. And through that repetition and through that perfection, you get to that point of perfection. And you're right. As you saw in clinic and in the OR, it for me, and and it's not this way for all of my peers. And I, I you know, I, I have we all function differently. But knowing what our gifts are, for me, it it has to be set up right. It's the it's the set it's a set it's the situation it's the environment, you know it's the it it's not just haphazard. Okay, we'll do this uh, you know whenever we can tomorrow or no, it it needs to be planned. It needs to be everything needs to be right and it needs to just be flawless. And so, for instance, walking you, you back to a- asking, I knew Lorena's situation when I walked in because I you know to me this is. Um, a woman who has a uh, an aldosteronoma um, and she needs she needs it resected and she the other adrenals out so she needs a partial resection. Okay, what's the anatomy? Can we do it technically? Yes, we'll come posteriorly. Um, we'll say that blood supply. Um, we'll push her kidney down. Um, what I need to know is what's your body shape, what's your body mass index, um, what ports I need, um, and then it, you know my mind gets rolling technical, and so I've got my plan, and then. That comes off, and then I walk in the room, and now the personal part. Who is who is the person, and what does she need? And let me look at her body, and let me look at her incisions, and then let me plan and listen to what's right and how to how to be in control and how to, without being controlling, and how to set the tone. It's about patience. It's totally about patience. And the whole blessing of what we do and the blessing and the gift of what I get to do every day when I walk into that clinic or I walk into that OR is to meld the the woes because very few people count on being there or want to be there. People don't sign up that, you know, they want a tumor. Correct. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't come in life when it's, you know, it's perfectly like they've blocked out, uh, you know, a month in October that they're going to go through treatment. It's never convenient. It's on someone else's category and someone else's timing and in waiting room and scheduling. Um, but it's those woes that ultimately they come to a point of being transformed and ultimately making something good about out of it, right? And I get that blessing of sitting there um, and helping to make that happen. Like, okay, this seems like a bad problem. Technically, we have this handled. We can cure the problem. Um, not a problem. Um, but along the way, let's heal you. And that's that's the the ultimate um, gift. So that uh, the the transition and that transformation that happens afterwards. Um, People are different. They're different. You're different after having a, a major surgery. You're different after being diagnosed with cancer. You're different after having a, a, a terrible hormonal imbalance that affects everything about you and the way you process. And so it's this is that point of going through the mud, right? This is this is the this is no, no mud, no lotus. Yes. And that's the mud, and that's you know, and to get them from that mud up to it, it's a it's a tremendous privilege, but with it comes a tremendous responsibility. And with your peers, is it common that they are as profound and thoughtful and spiritual as you? Is that something taught at med school? Is our feelings taught or how, how does that work? I think we're doing better in 2021 than we were in, um, in 1990 when I was in med school or in, you know, 1950 when, you know, our parents were in med school. Um, but to answer your question, I'm, 
most of the folks in my field and my peers um, were there because we're science-minded. We were STEM, and then we were we were STEM-minded as children or young adults. We, we succeeded in that category, so that was our drive, right? It's an intrinsic drive of being, of responding to the science part. And it becomes easy to become very scientific and only scientific, and to look at cancer and its cells and the mRNA and immunotherapy and and receptors and you know that's our job to 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 learn how to cure that and to use the science and many people along that way deviate from the spiritual part and i can say i'm i'm certainly i think i think we all have a spiritual core but i think i'm more it's more palpable with me than many of my peers, but I certainly have a, a big group of, um, of peers and friends. And as you say, um, the spirit is receptive and they are everywhere and they are disseminated everywhere, um, really strong spiritual people at all levels. So we know who each other are. Um, and it's almost, you know, in the biblical form of um, as the shepherd you know, leads his sheep. The 99 that are in line where they should be, you know, the the shepherd goes after the one that deviates. And it's, you know, we, we all have deviated at some point, right? We all get a little, a little, um, a little too much ego or a little too much callous, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we think we know best and we forget that there's a divine plan. But then when, when we're brought back on, on, on board, then we're, then we're much more in tune and sensitive. And I can say, um, you know, just in a daily text I have that, you know, I think there, I've got several, but one of them is, you know, um, dozens and dozens of people who are all um, surgeons um, of, of some sort in the country at, at all all levels. And and we, we found each other and even friends of friends, and we don't even all know who's on the text and we don't know, but, you know, we uh, we pray together in the morning, right? We we disseminate that goodness through all of our institutions, and but I don't think I don't think all my peers are this faithful. And is it something that you think needs to be addressed on how we're, uh, they're teaching our next generations, or do you feel there's more awareness regarding? No, I I think. I, I certainly think um, acknowledging it, I think we've become less comfortable in acknowledging that we're not all totally in control, that there is a higher power, whatever that higher power would be. So I think setting the the pace for just being um, more comfortable, at least acknowledging that we we have we have room for improvement. And again, I think it's part of um, the leadership journey of those of us. Um, in positions of leadership, uh, identifying where that comfort level is. I remember reading when I was journaling and going through the healing process, emotional healing process, I ran into one of Anderson Cooper's um, interviews that he used to be going to war zones and that he he was a photographer and he found a hand, you know, from a bomb or something And he looked at it as a very artistic picture. So he started taking picture of it and, you know, the art form and the angles and how the light plays. And then it came to him that, oh, my gosh, it totally became an object. And I forgot that is the hand of someone that was suffering, uh, a victim of war. So how do you deal with objectifying a human body or not? getting involved emotionally with a body that you're operating on. Is that something that you build as a muscle? Like, do you put limits in the emotional involvement you have with a patient? Or is it each doctor decides on how to do it? Um, I remember feeling betrayed by my surgeon when he did the medical malpractice. Because when I saw him, I saw his eyes. He looked at me into the eyes, his hands, all his body language was the right one. Even, you know, he said, please know you can reach me. So everything was right. But and the way I honored him was giving him my body, you know, and I would lay at his mercy to see if he could heal me. Right. So I felt unloved when he never followed back. And when he told me I had a bilateral condition. So it was part of the hurtful part was not feeling loved. It was not about even physically 
feeling I was dying. It was more about how can a human being put um, a lid on their mistakes. And I understand maybe the lawyers told him or whatever, but how is it that we can tell him or any doctor that for me, my experience would have changed if he would have told me, I see you and I'm so sorry and I want to follow up with this because in my story, who followed up was my endocrinologist and he took the blow, my parents' anger, and he just, you know, pushed through and he's the one that guided me to MD Anderson. And when I had the encounter with my surgeon, the only thing I wanted to ask him is, what would have changed if I was your daughter? And part of my mission is doing that, you know, how I know it must be not a healthy thing, thinking everyone you operate is your daughter, but then I question it. And what what if that is the case? How do doctors navigate that fine line without feeling it's a failure and maybe going into depression because of a patient died? Like I've never carried that burden that doctors do. So I'm trying to um, be empathetic and understand the burdens that you carry and try to understand why would someone not talk about a mistake and hide it and just like put technicisms and say it was a bilateral condition, eventually you'll end up in the hospital again. So in your field, do you see that mistakes and lawsuits is something that is um, such a big culture that makes the, the doctor become less human and more more doctor or have you, what is your opinion on that? So I, I listen to you and I, I pain for you and I, I want to acknowledge that I feel your pain and I'm sorry for your pain. And you need to know that, that I think from our profession standpoint, no one wakes up you know, we never wake up and say, okay, I'm going to go do something wrong today, right? We all Correct. have the right intention. We we perform. We're, we're professional athletes in the ultimate game. In, in my field, someone comes from, I have patients mostly from far away that come, they willingly lie on a piece of stainless steel and take off all of their clothes and lie nude and allow me Invite me and then allow me to rearrange organs at will that determine life and death and all of their quality um, is just an awesome, in every sense of the word, responsibility. That privilege of being, um, being an athlete in the sense and having to perform every day there are certain muscles that we build along the way. Um, part of it is the duration of our training. Mm-hmm. You know, for for our field, it, it's it's medical school, it's internship, it's five years of surgical training. It's it might be another two years of specialty training. Um, it's it's years of your life that um, it does become um, a muscle, and it it does become categorized. But the art of it is for it to never not be personal, right? Um, when I, you know, when we put a dressing on and, and teaching the fellows and putting it on, you know, bend that little corner so that tomorrow morning when we take that off, when we take that dressing off, we don't have to pinch their skin. Art of the lab so that they're drawn at 7 a.m., not at 4.30 a.m. Because 4.30 a.m. is easier for us because when we round at 6.30 a.m., they're ready. But in reality, you know, I mean, it's those little things mm-hmm. that we want treated for us. So so categorizing it and not being, um, you know, I need to go in and remove this adrenal. I need to dissect this vena cava. I need to save this cortex. I need to make sure there's not bleeding. I need to push this kidney down. Those are very technical. Um, and those are um, the blessing of having been well-trained and being confident and consistent and doing that and shaking my hands. That's my business for the day. That is my ultimate um, business. And so we, we do that, Lorena, and it is uh, day in and day out. But I can say that there are absolutely patients that come along that totally transform us. Um, I can tell you who they are. I can name them. I can tell you everything about them because I am a totally better person 
for them because of that. And some of them are going through um, grieving and dying with them. The flip to what, um, and you know, of being heard, um, I think to your question, the business of medicine has put us in such a position that it becomes uh, a case, becomes a revenue, becomes another case and more revenue. It becomes making money for the hospital. It becomes the lawyers say, um, we're going to fight, you know, and it becomes, and we lose the person of it if we, if we let, if we let it. Yes. And that's the courage and the strength of not letting that happen. And, and we've all. Detachment, right? Yeah. But we've all had cases that we look back and, you know, there is not a case, you know, I'm not ruminating in my head. I know exactly what move I did when I moved that right angle and I got into that blood vessel. I know exactly what move it was, um, you know, at what point when my hand, you know, was behind the stomach and I was dissecting and, and, you know, my hand, my tips of my fingers didn't feel the right plane. I mean, there are absolutes when we know that something wasn't right. Um, And we, I speak for myself, I know, you know, we think back through that, that one of the best gifts I've ever had when we combine those highs and those lows was a patient who had an adrenal tumor who came all the way from the other side of the globe and we went through her process and she um, she died after about six months of treatment and dying with her, she told me, um, she gave me the blessing of um, looking at me and saying, um, I will meet you in Rumi's field. Oh. And she knew that um, she had come and entrusted in me and I did my best and it wasn't good enough. It wasn't, it, it didn't, it didn't work. And she died ultimately. And she, you know, and she had, she, she, you know, and she had chosen me. And in my sense, um, knowing that she knew and I knew and that, you know, there was, there was no betrayal, um, although I felt like I had betrayed her. I can't imagine the, um, I imagine you went through a grieving process totally, as well. Totally. We go through, we go through grieving, we go through depression, we go through, um, we need to get back on that pony and get, you know, and get back in that, you know, we, we, and that's the importance of good, good partners, good peer groups, good, you know, having colleagues that you can talk to. Um, Mental you know, health, I imagine, totally, is also a big thing, totally. right? Is there enough support um, for mental health within the institutions? Um, Anderson is getting so much better. And I just totally applaud um, Peter Pisters, who was a surgeon before he became, you know, the president of Anderson. And um, and Peter, you know, under his leadership, we have um, so many more things for wellness and mental health for all of our caregivers, because we do. We deal with death and dying every day. And then we have to wipe our hands and get in the car and drive home and go pick up carpool. Um, and so there are many, many more things. But the her- heroicism of what we do in our specialty as surgeons, you know, it's not that we easily, it's not something that we easily um, we easily talk about or, or speak to. Have you ever questioned, I'm done, this is it, I, this is my time to live in a easier, slower pace, let's say nurturing. I know that you're a healer and you're a giver, but is there a time when you just say, I surrender and I won't take every life as my responsibility and just take only mine? Is that a question that you encounter? It, it um, I, I, I love that curiosity and, and I love that question. I'm going to answer it in the reverse. The first thing I'm going to answer is I frequently tell the fellows um, and our junior faculty and, and peers, when you get to a point that you don't feel it anymore, you have to quit. If you you put in that chest tube and it doesn't go right and that patient's bleeding and you you can turn a blind eye and you don't feel it, then you've gone too far. You have to quit. So I, I, I constantly, you know, look in my colleagues and look for that in myself. Um, I have reached, I think technically, how many hours we put in our 4,000 hours, our 10,000 hours. I am better now technically than 
than I I have been in my career. So I know I I know my calling, and I can't get. I know I can't give up. I know I can't. I I I still have much more to give. It's my responsibility because I have experience and expertise that I have to share. But I do, and I have reached um, of of even recent, and I, it's probably part of COVID and really taking a pause and really answering to myself spiritually of being able to slow it down and acknowledge what is really important to me. And um, let me simplify this because in that, in that scurried race, we started, I started answering to false idols of leadership and management and administration and business and changing the quality of healthcare and making it, you know, and things that need to happen but I don't need to be the one to do all of that. I need to contribute, I need to voice, but I also need to acknowledge that when we were standing in line for gifts, the gift given to me was the gift of, um, of people. And I need not take myself away from the bedside to be in the, in the executive suite. Thanks for listening to On My Way with Lorena Hunko Magain. We'd like to invite you to send us your thoughts and any questions from this podcast by emailing Lorena at LorenaHunkoMargain.com. You can also reach out to us directly through our website by clicking the link in the show description of this podcast. Special thanks to executive producer Casey Helmick, studio engineer Joseph Olguin, audio and video editor Scott Caro. This podcast is a production of Terra Firma and recorded from the historic Arlen Studios in Austin, Texas. 